Great. Hi. Thank you so much for coming to my seminar. I had great fears that I would be um, here speaking to an empty tent. That was my nightmare last night. So I'm pleased that you're here. Um, a quick outline of what we're going to be doing this morning. So shortly we're going to hear from a passage in Luke 4 read by Beryl. And I'm going to be explaining a little bit about what is this precious identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And whilst we can't lose it, um, what are some of the things that can cause us to lose our understanding of it and the freedom that it has brought for us? Have you got sound issues? Okay, sure. Um, great. And how... Um <laughs> I'm just a bit short, really, aren't I? There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, and how all of that can affect our witness. Um, so, um, Beryl and Kieran, um, they are a very long-standing and very loved couple in our church right now. They're just sat at the, at the front here. They're also members of Westminster Chapel. Um, they're going to share with us some of their testimony of how they've lived out throughout various trials and normal life some of the things that I'm going to be talking about um, this morning. They are very involved in our pastoral care team. They lead our marriage prep course uh, for engaged couples. They are great encouragers, some of the best encouragers in our church. And above all, I just always think of them as worshippers of God. And I know that what they say will be really impactful for you. They're going to lead us also into a time of prayer. So if anything um, you feel like is, is working in your heart this morning, there's going to be time for us to pray in small groups at the end. So that time is coming. But I just want to start by saying that if you feel like this is a sensitive issue for you as we start talking, there is no shame whatsoever in that. I want to openly say that I think I struggle with matters of identity on like a minor and major scale about like a thousand times a day. So this is absolutely fine. Um, there is no shame in it. We live in a world that's constantly trying to pull our eyes off Jesus, and there's a devil that loves to take advantage of that. So what I say, some of it is loosely based on those discipleship groups that Claire mentioned. It's taken in part from some of Mike Breen's thinking. Um, and I think I'm just going to start by praying and then again, and then um, Beryl and Kieran are going to come and read the passage to us. So Lord, we just thank you for this time this morning. Pray that you would equip us as we share and equip these guys as they listen and that your name above all would be glorified and that we would grow deeper in our understanding of our identity in you. Let's hear from God's word. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, 
It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Before we start grappling that passage and looking at these temptations, um, we're going to look a little bit at some aspects in chapter 3, just briefly. Because before we can wage spiritual battle against these temptations, we need to deeply understand and embrace what our identity is. And that's the pattern that we see Jesus do too in chapter 3. So I think this chapter could be entitled, Who is Jesus? We have John the Baptist, and he has been faithfully proclaiming Jesus and the baptism in the Holy Spirit to come. And then suddenly Jesus is right there in front of him, asking to be baptized. He wants to start his public ministry by publicly dedicating himself to the Lord. And an initially reluctant John the Baptist does so, and it says the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Who do you say I am? Jesus famously asked his disciples. Who do you say he is? Is he a wise teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he both human and divine? Was he crucified, raised back to life? Was he the victor over sin and death? I love God's answer here. He says, you are my beloved son. Jesus, he'll go on to perform numerous miracles, recorded ones. He will provide the foundations for an international, worldwide public ministry. He will overcome death and sin and be resurrected. And yet, God doesn't define him by what he will do or has done or is called to do. He defines him by who he is in relation to the Father. He defines him by the Father's love. He is beloved. He is his son. When we put our trust in Jesus, we're also filled with the Holy Spirit. And through Jesus' victory at the cross, we also become sons and daughters of God, dearly loved. Even more so, he took our our punishment on him for all the sin that we've done, past and future. So that we're not just forgiven, but we can live in grace. When God looks at us now, he chooses not to see our mistakes, but the righteousness of Jesus, who he says he is well pleased with. So who do you say I am? Who is Holly Satterthwaite? Well, I have over the last few weeks actually been collecting some labels for you that people have been um, uh, throwing around at me. So let's see, who do people say I am? I am a pastor's wife. I'm a working mum. I'm a coper. I'm gifted. I'm prickly. I'm formidable. And I'm a force of nature. It's getting a little bit worrying, isn't it? That last one even came from my husband. Um, (laughs) But a voice from heaven says, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. And that voice, it says the same thing to all of you here today too. In Galatians 4.26, it says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are not what you do or will do. You're not even defined by your own love. At the very core of our beings, we are not lovers of God. For that I am grateful. My love, it is imperfect. It is definitely fickle. But instead, from that very first commitment that I made to Jesus, I am beloved. I'm a beloved child of God. And so why is that important? It's important because life is tough. It's hard. It's unpredictable. And it's full of people that want to judge us. And we need to know that when everything is stripped away, we're still loved. We're still valued and secure in Jesus. That our place in his kingdom is immovable. If my eyesight fails and I can no longer sew, which as Claire said, is something that I dearly love to do, or my children go wayward, they never visit, Westminster Chapel fails and splits 
Howard, my husband, is unfaithful and leaves me, I am still a beloved child of God. And that is the foundational truth that enables us to face the hardships of life. My identity in my arguably healthy prime is no different to that of Howard's gran, Mona, who at 102 last month moved into a care home. She's also a believer. Equally, it's the foundational truth that fuels our witness. It fills us with a joy that overflows to those around us, and it differentiates us from unbelievers. We know who we are, we know what we're here for, to glorify God, and we can keep on going, sharing this news, because whatever we face, it cannot change the core truth of who we are as beloved children of God. That's in God's hands, and he never changes, and it's so good, how can we not share it? And in case we ever doubt it, sorry, I keep going quiet and loud, I feel, Um, Luke includes the genealogy from verse 23, the prophesied lineage of Jesus, proving that he is the son of God. Our faith, it's not just experiential, it's historical and it's factual. So when we're talking about identity today, we're not talking about an emotional experience, we're talking about something that's anchored in history. See, we all here who are in Christ, we have two genealogies, the one that describes why we might have straight or curly hair, and the one that we see in the passage just read well, that comes before the passage just read. Um, We who are in Christ have been grafted into this new family like a vine into a well-established vineyard. Now, I keep saying we cannot lose our identity in Jesus, but as I said, we can lose some of our understanding and the freedom that that brings for us. So I've got a silly example for you before we go on to looking at this passage in chapter 4. I am... I have a work phone that's on an O2 contract. Now, I'm not tech savvy at all. I couldn't even adjust my microphone earlier. Um, So um, imagine my surprise when I I go to Nero one Tuesday with a colleague, and I'm paying for my coffee. And she stops me, and she's like, what are you doing? Why don't you just use your your priority, O2 priority, even have it for free? Now, I have no idea how long this deal has been going, but I've been blindly paying for Nero coffee for a very long time, and I'm entitled to it for free. But I work in a law firm. We don't do anything for free. It didn't even occur to me that this could be a possibility. See, I didn't realize what being an O2 customer meant. I didn't realize what had been already purchased for me. So let's look at chapter 4. Jesus is being led into the wilderness. It's an intentional leading to prepare him for his public ministry. It reminds me of what the Israelites went through to prepare them for the promised land. So if we look at the start in Luke 4, 1 to 4, we come across the first temptation, and it's one of appetite. So Jesus, he's been fasting, and he's been tempted throughout this entire period, and he's now hungry, probably ravenous. And it's at this time that the devil tempts him, seemingly with innocent bread. It's not riches, it's not good food, it's not even like the West Point mini donuts. I haven't had any yet, but I look forward to those all year, they're really good. Um, He tempts him with bread, a basic need. What could possibly be wrong with that? Temptations from the devil, they are not random coincidences. In verse 13, it says, the devil departs until an opportune time. The devil plans his temptations for when we are most vulnerable. And Jesus is hungry. Perhaps this weakness in his humanity will just disguise what's going on here. See, the devil is telling him, commanding him to turn the stone into bread. He's inviting him to create food at the devil's request, to use his power to satisfy his desires rather than to trust God to supply his needs. 
A key part of this verse is, if you are the son of God, and it's designed as a catch-all trick. See, at one level, the devil's saying, you're looking a bit thickly, sickly and thin to me. Are you sure you're the son of God? Are you sure God's going to help you? Is he really going to come through for you? Hungry. It doesn't sound very beloved. Can you risk waiting for him any longer? Maybe you should just take matters into your own hands. There is a misconception sometimes in Christian circles that if God is in something, then it will be easy. We talk a lot about God opening doors as if he's in the habit of swinging open doors for us just to skip through without much hardship. But I don't think I know of many significant moves of God in biblical or modern history that hasn't come without a lot of hard work of waiting and suffering. A sense of ease is not necessarily a great biblical tool for discerning our future. When you are parenting rebellious kids, or you're feeling overwhelmed at work or at church, when things feel tense in your marriage, it doesn't mean that God has left that situation. It doesn't mean that he has left you. You are still a beloved child of God. Whatever you face, God will never forsake you. And that enables us to face this uncertainty in life with a peace and even a joy that can just baffle the world around us. Equally, the devil is also saying, if you don't do this, then you're not the son of God because no one would intentionally starve themselves to death. So if you don't do it, it's because you can't. And that's what makes Jesus' reply so clever. So he says, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Actually, Satan, you've missed the whole point. There is something so much greater than bread that I need. Yes, my physical body needs bread to keep living right now. But in God, my life is eternally secure. Bread can't do that. It can only sustain me in the here and now. We need God first, then bread. Jesus trusts God to provide the bread. But even more, and this is the powerful and really hard bit, if we're honest, he trusts God that glorifying him is more important than whether he even gets the bread. He trusts God to sustain him for as long as he is needed on this earth and to continue to be with him beyond that time too. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when faced with the fiery furnace, they didn't bow down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. He asked them, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And they replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. You see, even bread can become a golden image when we put it above and before God. So just reflect in your hearts, what is your bread? What are you tempted to satisfy your appetite with before and above God? Is it a relationship, a job? Is it a lifestyle? Is it a house? Is it porn? Is it a dodgy cash flow to meet a pressing debt? And what does that say to the world around us? That God's really good, but some things are just a little bit too important to let go of control of and give over to him, right? But in truth, we know the opposite is true. Remember who you are. You're no longer slaves to fear. 
You're no longer trying and struggling to meet all your needs and your own ability. He has proved his faithfulness to you at the cross and will continue to do so. Bread will eventually spoil and go moldy, but the Lord your Father will be by your side forever. And then the devil takes him and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and offers to give him authority over them all and their glory if he just worships him. Everyone will bow down to you, Jesus. Just bow down to me. So two points here. Firstly, the devil, he is the father of all lies. He says, I give it to whom I will. So my children the other day, they were arguing over um, Howard's iPod. My daughter had it first. I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And she shouted, it's mine. I was holding it. You can only have it when I say so. At which point I broke in and I said, actually, this is daddy's iPod. He decides who has it. Now, neither of you will. Now, I don't want in any way to compare my daughter to the devil here this morning, but (laughs) the devil wields some power in this world, but don't be deceived that he is the ultimate wielder of all power. That bullying boss or that domineering parent can appear to hold the reins to everything, but they're not the ones ultimately in control. The God holds the reins to the universe, and does so for eternity. So don't be bullied or tempted into sin or forgetting who you are because of your fear of the power of those around you. You are the beloved child of the God of the universe. This Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. Only God can give the kingdoms. And Jesus knows that in time, by trusting God's plan, one day every knee will bow and see him for who he is. But he has to endure the cross first. He must first be despised and mistreated. Secondly, the devil is tempting Jesus to go after praise for himself. Now, Jesus could have very deservedly demanded self-worship, but he didn't. He was some humble and servant-hearted. He didn't go after the adoration of those around him, but the praise of his father. Living for the praise of others is a huge idol in our culture. Psychologists have discovered that when we are in social situations, four out of the five background um, psychological processes going on in our brains are about our interactions with other people and our relationships with them. It can dominate our thoughts and control our behavior. Just this morning, I said to Claire and Heather that I have washed my hair purely because I am here speaking to you this morning. And I don't want to look like, even though I have, been living in a tent for the last two days. Um, but it can also affect big things. So in, 18, in 19, rather, 64, Kitty Genevos, if any of you are psychologists, you will have heard her name. She was murdered in New York City in 1964. It was a multiple stabbing witnessed by around 30 people. Not a single person intervened, and only one person called the police after the event had occurred. And so there was this uh, study into this tragedy, what happened. And it led to what we now know as the bystander effect, which essentially means that the more people witness an event, the less personal responsibility each individual feels, and so the less likely they are to do anything about it, which is a little bit depressing. But a key factor in the strength of that effect is what the individual thinks other people think. So to bring this to life, if I was to collapse right now, but you all kind of just sat there and appeared emotionally unmoved, Kieran is much less likely to do anything to help me than if I get a paper cut right now and everyone starts shouting in panic. You see, when we put too high a value on what other people think, 
We can lose our very sense of what's right and wrong. We can even lose our compassion. And this mentality, it leads to anxiety and insecurity, which actually, ironically, it pushes people away from us rather than pulling them to us. It's a lie that we can have approval from anyone or anything other than Jesus. It's only his blood that covers our failures and our vast sinfulness that we accumulate on our own. It's his spirit at work in us that transforms us. We get so caught up, and I know this in myself, we get so caught up in working to do what will make other people love us when the thing that makes us lovable is Jesus at work in us. So don't lose the humble servant heart that Jesus modeled of developing, encouraging, and serving others because you're too preoccupied with whether you look good. Let's not compare but be the unified church that we were created to be. And let's not stop sharing this good news because we're worried it might not be received well. Let go of the need to be well thought of or in the in crowd. You've already been irrevocably accepted by your father at a great cost. He knows our vilest thoughts and he chooses to love us anyway. So you can rest. Stop pretending to be the best because you're not, I'm not. Let's not lose the opportunity to live in this freedom because we're so worried about getting the praise that we don't deserve. And then our third temptation. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil is tempting him to publicly demonstrate who he is. What better way to start your ministry than as the Son of God, than with a grand demonstration of your power and God's backing? It's like, watch out, look, look, even the angels, they're on my side. But that's not the Savior that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He was to come, he was to come humble and mounted on a donkey. He was to have no form or majesty that we should look at him. And he would be despised and rejected by men. The devil is tempting Jesus to shortcut to every knee bowing and bypass the waiting, the suffering, and the rejection. But Jesus knows that he can trust God to know what's best for him and for his people, that his timings and his plans are perfect. After all, there is no salvation without Jesus willingly enduring the cross. Ambition, which is what we're talking about in this last temptation, is the strong desire to achieve success. And it can be a really good thing when well-placed. The danger is when our ambition turns into striving in our own power according to pride and self-reliance. Colossians in 1.29 says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. We're to strive according to his will, remembering that it's his power within us that achieves the success. So that well-disciplined child or that job promotion or that flourishing ministry, it's not ultimately dependent on our abilities or our work. We can be deceived into thinking that we're carrying that burden alone. And the stress and pressure that can be can be immense because without him, we're like a hamster in the wheel. We just go round and round and round, but we don't actually get there without him. We forget that we are spiritual children, not spiritual masters, and that it's by grace that we have anything at all. So why do we work at all? Because it transforms us. Those shortcuts that look so appealing, they bypass all the rich character development and deepening intimacy with the Father. 
It overlooks the, pro the fact that the process of achieving success is often part of the success itself. Car insurances have found that, and this is something I quote to my husband a lot because it took me a while to pass my driving test. Um, they have found that if you pass on your fourth attempt, long term, you are likely to be a much better driver than if, like my husband, you pass on your first. See, the processes, the mistakes, the failure, the waiting, the pain, all of that, it teaches us and it refines us. It's all part of the success. And it's the part that God is often most interested in. Rebecca in Genesis, she loved her son Jacob more than his brother Esau, always a recipe for disaster. She had taken to heart a promise 20 years earlier that the older son would serve the younger son, and she was really ambitious to bring it about. So she persuades Jacob to trick Isaac, their father, into blessing him and so passing on the inheritance rather than the brother Esau. She thought she'd found a shortcut. And whilst the prophecy came true, the deception, it had terrible consequences. Jacob and Esau, like Jacob has to flee because Esau's so angry at him, and they end up being separated for around 20 years. Rebecca, she essentially ends up losing the beloved son because he has to leave. I'm sure that she had some quite tense marital conversations afterwards as well. It says that uh, Isaac, he trembled very violently when he found out that his um, blessing didn't go to Esau. Rebecca appeared to get what she wanted and what God had prophesied, but it came at a cost, and it did nothing to unify God's people. Knowing you're a beloved child of God brings humility and a release and relief from the exhaustion of striving in our own power. It enables us to find a joy in our work and in our witness. He will accomplish his purposes. We only need to play our part and rest in that knowledge. It's not on our shoulders, and we are never in this alone. Proverbs 3, to, 3 7 to 8 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. At this point, I'm going to pass over to Beryl and Kieran. I'm a little bit taller, not a lot. Right, uh, good morning. Thank you, Holly. Um, just one thing I want to say before we begin is that I'm Irish, and we speak very quickly. And if you can't keep up, that's not my problem. <laughs> I speak at this rate, and you just need to listen a lot faster, okay? So, yeah, uh, Holly ended her talk with uh, how, good, how God will bring his plans about. And one of the wonderful Bible verses that myself and Beryl were giving uh, earlier on in our marriage uh, was Jeremiah 29.11. And this verse has got us through so many tough times. And it says, I'm sure you all know it very, very well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Well, myself and Beryl have been married for 24 years She's a very, God's been so good to her, really. Uh, and through various trials, we've sought to keep Jesus at the center, trusting him to give us the strength in really difficult times. Uh, one of our roles at uh, Westminster Chapel, which I think Holly said earlier, is we bring couples through marriage uh, prep. 
I see one of those couples here now, but I'm not going to point them out. Um, uh, as yeah, and what we try and just show them is that this verse will be good for their marriage. Um, it's actually it's a starting point of God's plan for their marriage. Um, uh, and while we were engaged, myself and Beryl, this is our story coming in. I was diagnosed with kidney failure. So the doctors started treating me with all sorts of tablets, some of which I can't even pronounce, I can't spell, and didn't at the time know the side effects of them either when I was, when I was taking them. Uh, we had no idea what the journey ahead would be like, but we decided to continue with our wedding plans and were married in 1994. Uh, one of the hymns that we chose for our wedding was Trust and Obey. Anybody know that? Yeah? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And little did we know that that would apply to our marriage year in, year out. Um, nine months after we were married, my kidneys failed completely, and I had to go on kidney dialysis. Uh, I was also put on the kidney transplant list. We had been praying for miraculous healing, but... God's plans aren't always the same as ours. And I wasn't healed miraculously, but I was one of the fortunate people to have a uh, transplant after about three weeks on uh, dialysis. As I went down for surgery, we had an amazing peace about this. I remember Beryl being with me in the hospital just before I went down. Actually, in fact, Beryl had so much peace that she and my brother and his wife went for a Chinese takeaway. So. <laughs> There were, it was a wonderful, uh, worry about me. So, but 24 hours, uh, sorry, 24 hours after the surgery, so I had five tubes coming into my neck here, uh, pushing through fluids to, um, to get the kidney working. Uh, so this, these fluids were coming in and they're coming out through a catheter on the other side. Uh, and we noticed 24 hours later that the, there was five um, plastic bottles beside my bed with still pink fluid in the, in the bottles and still coming through the catheter. We thought this was normal, so we didn't think much about it. And then this nurse came in and she walked up to the bed and she walked up to the bed, she goes, hey, Kieran, hiya. She looked down and we thought, ooh, what's happening? There was something on her face that we thought something isn't quite right here. So she said, I'll, I'll be back in a minute. And we I said, yeah, okay. But at that point, myself and Bear looked at each other and thought, something's not right. Now, we're not doctors. We don't know what's, what the outcome is supposed to be. Burl just grabbed my hand, and we prayed, simply, God, help. Very, 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 very simply. Didn't, didn't go into any uh, major kind of uh, prayer time. There wasn't time. Twelve minutes later, this nurse, I remember her marching back up to the bed, and uh, she, she, came up, she came, up to us, came up to us, and she looked down again, and she saw that actually coming out of the catheter was clear fluid. So, yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even I get emotional when I think about it. Um, and the look, at, she said, what's happened here? We said, we saw the look on your face, and we thought there was something wrong, so we prayed. Uh, needless to say, we had quite a conversation with a nurse after this. Uh, actually, she's from my village in Ireland, which is even... Uh, more amazing. Uh, so for about three years after the transplant, um, Seth and Burl had been trying for a family. Um, but after three years, uh, there was no 
um, pitter-patter of tiny grogan feet uh, in our house. So we both went for tests, and uh, it was quite a blow to us to get the results, to find out that the medication that they had given me to fight the kidney failure and to try and boost the kidney function, they were trying to do their best, they really were, but it meant that I couldn't have children. So this was one of the most difficult days of our marriage, I must admit. We were angry with doctors, we were angry with the world, we were angry with God, we were confused. We were wondering, where was God in all of this? And how could he allow this medication to be given to me but God? There's that lovely, that lovely Bible verse. We had lost our focus, but he still was there, waiting for us to realize that he still loved us, he cared for us, and that he saw our pain. One thing we had to choose, and I believe this is quite important, one thing we had to choose to do after we found the hospital had made this mistake was to totally forgive them. Because when you totally forgive them, we knew that then we wouldn't carry this burden of unforgiveness for the rest of our lives. We now have, because we did, we totally forgave them. Uh, then we have this freedom. Uh, as Holly was saying, we lead worship. We get very excited when we lead worship because that we don't hold this burden anymore. Um, so one question people often ask is, do you have children? Uh, and we found it difficult when our friends started to have children, especially in, you know, in church. Um, I remember one couple came around, really, really good friends of ours. They came around for dinner, and they sat opposite us, and it was a lovely evening. And all of a sudden, they just looked at each other, smiled, and going, we're going to have a baby. And we just went, yay! Because we were really excited for them, but at the same time, we hadn't had time to digest this. We didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, we usually thought friends, we, we might know a little bit beforehand. We were so pleased for them. We love their two boys now. We got on really, really well with them. Um, but we had to realize that our identity was not how many children we had, but who we were in Christ. Particularly for myself, I work in engineering, which is full of guys with skinhead haircuts and tattoos and you know, big hairy fellas. And one of the kind of ways of being manly is it like, how many children do you have? And obviously, we do, I don't have any children. Uh, but that's not, where, that's not my identity. Um, my identity is in Christ. Um, I used to blame myself, actually, in the early years, the fact that we couldn't have children. But when I realized that God is sovereign and that his plans are perfect, that I stopped blaming myself. The only approval we needed was Jesus Christ. Not what other people thought. Jesus is the only one that can bring peace and joy. And uh, one of the things that R.T. Kendall used to say, we sat under his ministry for years, was to dignify the trial. And he preached that very, very often. So we were fortunate to be under that teaching during that really difficult time. Uh, so even though we faced difficulty, we knew that we were still God's children and he loved us really dearly. Okay, so along the way, because of the kidney transplant and the medication that Kieran's on, um, we've had a few more medical battles. Um, but each time we're able to look back at the one before and just remember that God really helped us through and realise that actually these situations aren't out of our control. So I guess the more we go on, the stronger our faith is. Um, 
Earlier this year, Kieran was in a lot of pain and we thought, oh, here we go again. And we ended up in A&E and it worked out. They thought initially it was a liver problem, but it was his gallbladder. Um, so we were waiting for gallbladder surgery when we found out that his platelets dropped. Now, platelets are really important because they help the blood to clot, which is a bit of an issue if you're going to have surgery. So they put Kieran on a massive amount of steroids to bring those platelets up. Uh, and they have some pretty horrible side effects. So we've had a, a fairly rough early year. Um, but when it came to surgery, I had to really hold on to the fact that it was going to be okay because the devil's really good at lying and telling you it's not going to be okay. So I actually had to make a choice that, no, nope, it's going to be fine and choose to believe that. And uh, after surgery, um, I was going home in the car playing Ring Collective and this song really resonated with me. It's called Marching On and it's really got powerful words. It says, let our praises remind all the darkness of how great and how mighty our God is for the battle belongs to the Lord and no one else. We'll sing hallelujah for all hell to hear. Shout out Hosanna above every fear. Strongholds will crumble like castles of sand. We are marching on. We are marching on. And I really felt God was telling me, you've got through this again and we're marching on and I've got more stuff for you to do. So we've realized that our time's only going to end when God says so and not a day earlier. So we just keep going on every day, just keeping our eyes focused. As said, we are on the worship team at Westminster Chapel. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times where the last thing we want to do is get up there and praise God. But we found that when you press through, it brings an amazing freedom and joy. And we're really passionate about praising God. Because we know he's not let us down, it gives us that amazing freedom to praise him. And we shout louder every time we've had a trial. It gets louder and louder. It brings us a peace beyond all understanding. And Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those that love God. And although we may not understand at the time what's going on, and we may not know till we get to glory, but again and again we've seen God working good through some of the things that we've been through. We also believe that through these trials, our families and friends have been watching us quietly from the sidelines, probably wondering how we're getting through and how do we cope with all this stuff. In fact, we have seen this in our own lives. I was brought up in a Christian home. I was actually brought up at Westminster Chapel. But I was away from God during my teen years. And my grandmother got very ill. And I was watching my mum go through this and how she was dealing with the death of her mum. And actually watching my mum going through it and how she dignified, that was what brought me back to God. I was absolutely distraught at the loss of my nan. But my mum seemed to have a coping mechanism that I really couldn't quite make sense of. She was upset at losing her mum, but not in the same way that I was. I later came to understand that it was because mum's security was in Christ. She had that ultimate sense of assurance that she was going to see her mum again. And I learnt that through seeing my own parents go through death as well. Our families have realised that we're the ones to call when they're going through tough times. They may not be Christians, but they call us and they ask us for prayer. Uh, Kieran comes from a Catholic background, and two years ago, Kieran's sister became very ill and faced cancer. So we tentatively started to offer prayer through phone calls. 
um, we sent encouraging Bible verses. And as she started to open up a little bit, we sent songs to her to help her through the time that she was going through. And the last time we saw her, we prayed. We asked, could we pray with you? And she said, yes. After we picked ourselves up off the floor, uh, she, we prayed with her. And then she said, can I pray? So this is her watching us from the sidelines and it coming through and we're seeing results. And she actually prayed and it just really just touched us. And she did pass on and we believe that she's with Christ now. Kieran's work colleagues have also seen how he deals with tough times. Um, they find it amazing that he can still remain cheerful even going through tough medical treatment and it's given him gospel opportunities to talk to his work colleagues. So what we'd like to do today is encourage you, whatever you're facing, just remember where your security, purpose and value are. It lies in Christ and he keeps it, he's in control and he will look after you. And you never know how God's going to use what's gone in in your life to help bring others closer to him. So now we're just thinking, as we said uh, in the beginning, if you could maybe just get together in small groups and pray together about just what you've heard today, about God's plans for your life and how we can trust him and... Uh, yeah, putting him first and our identity being in Christ. So just to get together, turn around in small groups with people and have a uh, uh, pray together. And just one other thing, if you want to talk to myself or Beryl or Holly about anything that we've spoken about, please come forward and have a chat. Uh, we'd love to talk to you if we can help you in any way. Okay? Hi everyone, I know some of you are praying, so this is just a little quick um, interruption, sorry, but I think that Holly and Kieran and Beryl, I'm so sorry, I didn't have much sleep last night, um, did an absolutely amazing job, and can we please thank them, because I think they were outstanding, <laughs> really outstanding, and just so very vulnerable, and I love that. Because actually when people are very real about what they're facing, it makes you realize that you can be very real about how you're facing and what you're facing. So if you're feeling comfortable praying with the people that you're with, go for it. This is a God moment. We're not due to finish for another 10, 15 minutes. This is precious time. And um, I just think Satan is an identity thief. He loves to kill, steal, and destroy what God has meant for good. And this is the time to turn around and go, actually, no. <laughs> Taking back my identity. What I'd love to see is people walk out of that door with the crowns on their head that Jesus has won for them and holding their head high. Because if you hold your head like that when you're wearing a crown, it falls off. So, yeah. So, Father, I just pray now in Jesus' name that you would come in your power, that you would come in your authority, and that you would transform our identity into the identity that you gave us, where the enemy has tried to kill, steal, and destroy what you've made good. 
We pray in Jesus' name that that would fall at your feet, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and breathe new life and a restored identity into your lovely sons and daughters who are sat here right now. I pray that you would deal with hurt and pain and labels that have been spoken over them that are wrong. I pray that they would come off now. I pray, Father, where there is shame, that that would be dealt with. Where there's guilt, that would be dealt with. Because all of these things just hide who we really are. So help us to throw those things off, I pray, in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, you are the best psychologist, psychiatrist, and doctor. So will you come and do what only you can do? In Jesus' name, amen.